Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levero Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by swan.com. Today, my guest is Jonathan Newman. He is Associate Professor of Economics and also a fellow over at the Mises Institute. Now, have you wondered about the correct definition of inflation? I'm sure many of us have gotten into arguments about what is the correct definition in terms of what the mainstream says and what do Austrians think and what is a more precise definition. But actually, in this episode, we're getting into a little bit more detail around how even some Austrian economists can disagree on what the correct view of inflation is. So we explore this question in this episode today. This show is brought to you by CoinKite.com. If you are holding Bitcoin, you've got to make sure you are holding your own keys and not leaving your Bitcoin with a custodian or with an exchange. CoinKite makes it easy for you to do this. Notably, they have the cold card, which is their well-known product. And you can obviously buy that and use that in various configurations, whether you just directly plug it to your computer or whether you use NFC or whether you use a micro SD card. Another device that you should also consider is the tap signer. This is a device that you can use easily with NFC and with wallets such as Nunchuck. Now, this might make sense for a smaller, lower value setup or perhaps part of a multi-signature device or setup. And so if you're interested in any of these devices, make sure you check out coinkite.com and get a discount on your cold cards with the code Levera. Mempool.space is where I go to check my fee rates before I send a Bitcoin on-chain transaction. As you might know, before you go to send Bitcoin, you need to target your fee, whether you are going to put in a high fee and get that transaction confirmed sooner or put in a lower, more economical fee and if you are willing to wait a little bit. Mempool.space is a fantastic visualizer for you. It shows you Bitcoin's mempools. It shows you the blockchain. It shows you second layer networks like the Lightning Network, and you can even host it yourself. It's free and open source software. Mempool.space is going to be coming out with a transaction accelerator soon. So watch this space for more. And otherwise, go and check out mempool.space. And the lead sponsor of this show is Swan Bitcoin over at swan.com or using the Swan Bitcoin app available for Apple or Android. You can easily and safely buy Bitcoin with recurring purchase plans or make use of one-time buys, also known as smash buys. Swan.com makes it easy for you to teach people about Bitcoin and you can even gift Bitcoin to people using Swan. So over at swan.com slash gift, you can gift somebody some Bitcoin and they will receive the gift of not just Bitcoin, but also world-class education and customer support. So Swan's team can help that person onboard into Bitcoin. They can even email and ask about how to set up a wallet and all of those typical questions that people have when they are new to Bitcoin. So Swan can make it easy for you to gift to your friends and family. So think about if you have any friends or family with a special occasion coming up, whether that is a wedding or a birthday or some anniversary or some other kind of gifting occasion, and go and check out swan.com slash gift. And now onto the show with Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Stefan. So I had a look at your paper that you wrote along with Christopher, and I thought it was an interesting one about inflation. Of course, there are big, big debates all around the world, not just in Austrian circles, but in the broader world about what inflation is, how should we define it, how should we think about it. I thought it would be handy to get you on and talk, about, uh, talk a little bit about that. So do you want to just start with a little bit of your motivation? Like, why did you write this paper? Sure. It's a, it's a very uh, or a hotly debated topic, even in the past few years uh, in like popular media, where people are talking about what inflation is and where it comes from. Uh, you see in the media people talking about how supply chain issues cause inflation. You even see a lot of people talking about how greed causes inflation, as silly as that is. Uh, but of course, you know, going back in the, the history of economic thought, there, there used to be a well-established definition of inflation that involved an increase in the supply of money, especially especially an increase in the supply of money or uh, the supply of notes beyond the amount of, of gold that existed in the economy. So, so that used to be the definition. But then, you know, since the Keynesian revolution and other changes in the history of economic thought, we've, we've sort of meandered from that idea to the idea that inflation is, is a rise in prices. And, and of course, that is a consequence of inflation, but it's not uh, inflation itself. So in this paper, uh, we try to, uh, uh, like, we try to settle on a really good definition of, of inflation that's suitable for doing economics uh, and that uh, it, it is 
it's good and, and it goes along with the rest of the Austrian literature. Um, but unfortunately, there's, there's actually, like you, like you mentioned, there's some debate even between Austrian economists and differences, uh, between Austrian economists, even between the big names like Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard. Uh, they had, they had slightly different, uh, definitions of inflation in their works. And so in our paper, uh, we, we talk about how Rothbard's definition is the best for doing economic analysis. Uh, and the main reason why is because it, it it makes use of counterfactual reasoning. It uh, it compares one timeline with a, an alternative timeline, uh, and that's really the best way to to do economics and, and think about changes in the economy. So that's why we settled on on Rothbard's definition. Fantastic, and I think this is something where most people, I would say, or a lot a, lo- a lot of Austrian influenced people are probably using the Mises definition, like in terms of how they just think about things. And we'll get in, we, we should get into that and explain that. Um, but the way you know the way I've I've often thought about it is the Mises style. Any increase in the money supply is inflation. But do you want to explain a little bit about those definitions? So can you give us you know the Mises definition and what's the Rothbard definition? Sure. In uh, one, in some of Mises's main works, uh, he defined inflation as an increase in the supply of money in excess of changes in the, the demand for money. So if there's an increase in the supply of money that's not matched by a change in the demand for money, then you have the decrease in the purchasing power, you have the, the change in the price level, and so you have those sorts of consequences. And the thing about that definition, it, it, it's, I mean, it's, that is useful if that's the sort of thing that you're trying to analyze. The thing about that is, is that could apply to a gold standard. It could apply to uh, cryptocurrencies. It could apply to fiat money, but also to uh, fiduciary media. So whenever there's any sort of increase in the, in the money supply, no matter what that money supply is, constitu- uh, what constitutes that money supply, if it's in excess of, of money demand, then, then you, that, that would be uh, inflation in uh, the Misesian sense. I see. And then what's the Rothbardian definition? So I actually have it right here. So in Rothbard's version in Man, Economy, and State, he defines inflation as the process of issuing pseudo-warehouse receipts or more exactly the process of issuing money beyond any increase in the stock of specie. And of course, uh, by specie, he's referring to gold. And for warehouse receipts, he's referring to banknotes. And so here Rothbard is 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 showing that inflation is something that happens um, outside of the market. Inflation is something that happens when the banking system through fractional reserve banking or through uh, a, a government that's issuing paper notes, if they do that in excess of the, of the total stock of gold that exists, then that in, in Rothbard's view, that counts as inflation. So there's a slight difference there. In Rothbard's version, there's no real reference to the demand for money. And the reason why is because the demand for money will fluctuate. It'll go up and down in the market economy on its own. And so it's it's best to, to sort of set that aside and just focus on the, the change in the supply of money and what is what is instigating that. And so from Rothbard's perspective, it's it's if there's an increase in the amount of paper or, or claims to money, uh, uh, in excess of the uh, total stock of gold. I see. Yeah. So, yeah. So, summarizing then, as Mises defines it, it's inflation is an increase in the money supply as long as it's also that there's a connection there associated with the increase in demand for money. But right. Rothbard is putting it in terms of the actual, you know, issuing money beyond the stock of specie. So, mm-hmm. I'm curious then, um, and this also kind of veers over into the whole full reserve and fractional reserve debate. And now I'm personally in the full reserve camp. But does that mean your opinion might sort of turn based on if you're a if you're a Hoppian, Rothbardian, uh, full reservist, or you are a Selgenite, you know, quote-unquote free banker who believes in, let's say, fractional reserve banking as a legitimate process, I guess, does that kind of turn, your opinion might turn on this question, right? Well, I think that depends on the, the sort of uh, connotation that you have with the term inflation. So, if if you don't want uh, your policy prescriptions to be associated with the word inflation, then I can see how, how that would happen. But I mean, even even in just like an objective, unbiased sort of sense, uh, the the consequences of fractional reserve banking do result in the, the same sorts of things that happen when there's an increase in fiat money, uh, namely that there's this expansion of claims on on the base money beyond 
beyond the amount of base money that exists. So in that sense, like just objectively, they're, they're similar and they both fall under Rothbard's definition. It, so really you would only have that sort of difference or that, uh, maybe that pushback from, from those guys if you, if you just didn't want that, that term inflation to be associated with your sort of desired monetary institutional setup. Yeah. So I guess in a theoretical sense, it shouldn't change your view, but in the sense that if you want to be seen as anti-inflation, then you might right. not like that definition because, you know, as you're saying, the Rothbardian view, because Rothbard was anti-fractional reserve banking, and this view is sort of more aligned with his definition where, you know, uh, I mean, to make a simple example, a silly example, let's say there's 100 pieces of gold in the economy and there's, you know, 150 tickets that are paper claims for those 100, you know, those 50, what we're talking about is that 50 difference is fiduciary media. And, mm-hmm. you know, the creation of those tickets, let's say those extra 50 tickets above and beyond the 100 you know, gold ounces or gold pieces, that's that's inflation, that's fiduciary media, correct? That's right, yeah. So you're, I think you got it exactly right. So if they if they don't want that term inflation associated with their view, then then they they might push back against this. Otherwise, I I think uh, I think it works. Um, one one of the key similarities between an increase in fiduciary media and an increase in fiat money um, is that it's it's something that runs uh, counter to to the the choices by market participants. So in in the case of fiduciary media, and I know there I know there are all sorts of arguments uh, going against what I'm about to say, uh, but in the case of fiduciary media, that's an increase in the supply of money that may or may not be uh, matched by a change in the demand for money, but it's definitely, at least it's not certainly matched up with the supply of savings and people's desire to save. So our, our point in the paper is that there's this mismatch between what market participants choose and how how the money supply might react to people's change in preferences. And the definition that Rothbard offers really does, really does distinguish those two outcomes or the, those two processes. I see. And so let's put it this way. And this is maybe coming to a similar kind of conversation that maybe readers might have learned from reading Gita Hulsman, The Ethics of Money Production, right? So there's this notion that as you know, new money is created under a free market scenario, right? Not government scenario. There is some you know, legitimate um, purpose in that, you know, in the pre-Bitcoin world, let's say, uh, that you know, there are people trying to produce gold, like literally trying to go out and mine and refine it and produce it and make gold coins and you know, and so on. And I think the important point that you spell out in the paper as well is this, it's, you know, they paid a cost for it, right? It wasn't just ex nihilo, I'm the government, I'm, I'm you know, a Darth Vader, pray I do not alter the deal any further <laughs> style, right? It, because, because those gold producers actually went and had to dig and do this work to create the thing, as opposed to in the fiat arena, it's just today, it's dollars, it's numbers on a bank account, it's numbers in a database somewhere. That's right. So the in, in the case of any sort of market-produced money, the market is going to choose a money that has some sort of constraint on its production. Otherwise, otherwise the the money would, would just very rapidly lose value. And really, the, the only reason why uh, fiat monies don't lose value as fast as they would is because of the interventions by the state. So if you have legal tender laws, if you have all sorts of other things that are sort of propping up this this system, then it can maintain itself at least for a while. But of course, as we all know, all fiat monies are going to end in disaster. Uh, but in the case of, of gold, or like you said, in uh, Bitcoin, the the, su- the supply of it has some sort of constraint. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention gold since that's what we talk about in the article. So a gold producer has to pay for factors of production. They have to pay employees. They have to buy the land. They have to do. They have to buy capital goods and drilling and mining equipment. So you have to buy all these things just to get the thing out of the ground. And so what that means is the the supply of gold on the market is constrained by prices and very specifically the prices of those factors of production. But I mean, since uh, what matters is the relative prices of these things, it means that there will there will only be an increase in the supply of gold in a in a pure gold standard if the market actually desires it. If if prices are such that it is profitable and productive to increase the supply of gold. I see. And I guess, to be clear, none of this contradicts the sort of original insight that any supply of money, theoretically, can serve the role of money, right? It's not that, 
you know, because this is another common confusion, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. believe that, oh, in order for the economy to grow, the money supply has to also grow. And that's not true, is it? Oh, not, not true at all. And that was a part of the original sort of rhetorical tricks that were used to, to get the, the Federal Reserve started. So the idea was that we needed an elastic currency, that one that could expand and contract with the economy, specifically uh, expand. So like the idea is that if the economy grows, then the needs of trade grow and therefore we need additional money. Uh, but of course, that that's not technically true because prices can adjust. So since prices can adjust, then it, it means that any any supply of money will do with the important asterisk, as you mentioned, that it's any supply of money that is selected by the market. So so if if it's profitable to produce additional gold, then you can you can do that, and that that might uh, that might mean that you don't have to have all of the price adjustments that that would have happened without the increase in the money supply. But the point is, it's the market that chooses. It's it's the it's the economy. Uh, through all, all of the Im- important interconnections in the structure of production, through everybody's preferences uh, being revealed through action, it's the economy deciding, should we increase the money supply or should we change prices? So in, in the case of a, of a gold standard, any, any increase in the supply of gold, it doesn't have the inflationary consequences that the, that an increase in the, in fiduciary media or in fiat money would have. And the reason, and the reason why that, that we pinned down in this article is because market participants select it. Market participants decide to go through and do it and, and purchase the factors and, and produce the additional gold. I see. And so is there any, do you have any comment on why that might be? Like, why would they demand more monetary units? Or is that, you know, unanswered or, you know, we don't really fully know? Well, so we, as economists, we can sort of take a step back from from those sorts of questions, and it doesn't it doesn't really matter if if they go about and do it, or if they, if they produce additional gold, then their their actual reasons for doing so don't really matter. I mean, in the case of a uh, uh, of a, a gold standard and, and a gold producer, all that all that has to happen is that it's profitable to do so. So what that means is they can produce more gold than it, than they have to spend to produce it. So suppose they have to spend a hundred ounces of gold. And in so doing, they purchase factors that allow them to produce 105 ounces of gold as, as an yeah. output. And that's a five ounce increase in the supply of gold. But since it was based on that price difference, it means that the, the, the market, the rest of the economy was okay with that sort of thing, that that's a value productive thing. Uh, and to, to sort of drive that point home, we actually relied on another contribution from Rothbard, uh, that's uh, called demonstrated preference. So, in that case, the the increase in the supply of gold is is based on the demonstrated preference and the unanimity principle, such that everybody that's involved in the increase in the supply of gold and the the spending of it and the receiving of it as income was preferred by market participants, like it because they went through and did it on their own. But in the case of of fiat money and also fiduciary media, it's that's not. It's at least not as clear. There's not a there's not a connection between the changes in the supply of those and the preferences of of market participants. So so I I know that's, that's I'm sort of like wiggling through your uh, question there. Uh, it's they they might want um, they might want to mine more gold simply because it's profitable to do so. They might uh, want more gold simply because uh, of just size. Um, or like the convenience of the size of coins and the convenience of, of the of what can fit into a bank vault, uh, all sorts of considerations can go into that. Uh, but but you're right that at least at least theoretically, any supply of money will do as long as prices can adjust in general. Yeah, yeah. And I like the point that you made that uh, the gold, you know, in that scenario, let's say the world was on a gold standard, the gold manufacturer is operating on a personal gold standard, right? He's thinking. Can I outlay these 100 pieces of gold to get 105 pieces of gold? Like he's profitable mm-hmm. in gold terms. And obviously for Bitcoin listeners, then in a Bitcoin world, it would be like this Bitcoin miner is thinking, I'm going to outlay, you know, one Bitcoin to earn 1.05 Bitcoin or, or whatever, right? Uh, so it's the same kind of thing. He believes he can profit in Bitcoin terms. And that's the important point. And then I think the other point you're making is that when you distinguish between market chosen money, chosen voluntarily by the people, and then the fiat political money where basically it's a it's a political decision, it's a policy choice. And so there's a big 
distinction there. And I think this is probably the other point you were making, which is that in that scenario of actually free market money, sound money, producing more money, it, it's still socially beneficial. Whereas in the fiat money world, it's more like, it's sort of more in the value extractive sense because maybe the government is kind of taking resources from, you know, Jonathan to give to Stefan or from one person to give to another because that's kind of where we're getting into more like the Cantillon effect or the Mises effect particularly, right? Right. So you're, you're right that um, a lot of the uh, previous authors would say that, so actually, let me back up a little bit. Some some people would criticize the gold standard and say, well, if it if any supply of money will do, then isn't it wasteful for us to to increase the supply of gold to dedicate resources into mining more gold? And that's one of the questions that we address in our paper. Um, and so Rothbard, his answer to that was, well, Roth, uh, excuse me, uh, gold has other uses besides its use as money. So so even if uh, some of it will enter into the money supply, the fact that we're we're using more resources to mine more gold, since it has other uses, it's still socially beneficial. It's not a waste for us to to increase our gold mining. And well I think I think that's true. Um, I we wanted to be able to generalize this to any sort of market selected money, including in the case where uh, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency is selected. And the reason why is because it's not it's not as clear that there's alternative uses for some of those things besides its use as a medium of exchange. And so we wanted to be able to say, well, even even in those cases, it's still socially beneficial for the supply to increase as long as market participants decide to do it, as long as it's voluntarily chosen. And that that's where the demonstrated preference aspect comes in, is that if market participants decide to to have to have this a monetary institution where it grows algorithmically or it, it grows by uh, people uh, participating in uh, mining. It, if market participants decide to do that, then they have chosen, they, they have demonstrated a preference for, for that increase in the supply of money, it, independent of all other things that, that a, a government might do. So, and of course, like you said, in the case of, of fiat money, it's totally independent of the market. It's, uh, it's, it's somebody's, decision to increase or decrease the supply of, of money usually increase and the reason it's usually increase is just as you said it's it's because it's a method of of an extraction of resources from the market so you can think about the the market as this uh this engine of, of productivity and we're producing tons and tons of stuff and the, the government has a few different options of how they can acquire those those things from the productive economy they could tax it which is very or tax people on the market, which is very unpopular. People don't like taxes. Or they can print up new pieces of paper money that they can then spend into existence, spend into the economy, and acquire resources that way. So you're absolutely right. And it's because of that huge categorical difference between those two uh, inflation or those two processes that we decided to to say, well, let's call in this one inflation, the one that's... Uh, Outside the market, the one that has those sorts of uh, of consequences, we'll call that inflation. But the one that belongs to the market and is where changes in the supply are decided by market participants, we we can still talk about an increase and decrease in the supply of money, but may but maybe draw a line between them and say this one is inflation and this one isn't. I see. Yeah, and let's get into this effect, the Cantillon effect, and also. The Mises effect, which is a specific, you know, I'm reading that as a specific type of Cantillon effect. Now, mm-hmm. as I understand it, it's kind of, it's, it's the insight that money is not neutral. It matters who gets that new money first. And so, when we're talking about the production of new money, I guess you could sort of say the, the guy who's making that new money first, and maybe the first few people who he spends it with, they're kind of winning in, in the Cantillon effect, right? That's right. So, and that's the reason why the government is able to do that extraction, that expropriation from the market. It's because the, whoever spends the money first gets to lay claim to those goods and services that are produced by the market before prices rise. So they, they get to, to get those things. And then everybody else has to, well, not everybody else, but as, as the new money is spent, obviously the purchasing power of, of the money unit decreases, prices rise. And so everybody, that's later in that chain has to pay for that original expropriation in the form of higher prices. And so this is, this is why uh, inflation is sometimes called an inflation tax. It's because it's because whoever spends it first gets that initial benefit. Other, other early spenders also get to, 
to re- receive higher incomes before prices rise like at their own grocery store. Um, but then later on in that chain, as I said, then there are losers. There are people whose incomes have not risen and might not ever rise, but they have to pay the higher prices. So this, this sort of imbalance in the way money is introduced into economy, as you said, is called the Cantillon effect. In the, in the case of the Mises effect, which is a particular, uh, version or a particular type of the, or, yeah, an instance of the Cantillon effect, it's, it's when the money enters the economy through credit markets and has an effect on interest rates and therefore causes all sorts of changes in the production decisions that entrepreneurs make. And this, and this of course is what, uh, Mises, uh, it was this line of thinking that allowed Mises to, to talk about the business cycle. So if, if there's that increase in the, in the supply of credit that changes interest rates, then production gets lengthened. Uh, there's an increase in consumption as well. Uh, we have a bunch of people tr- changing their uh, production decisions in such a way that can't be completed. So there's only a certain amount of resources in the economy. And if you try to change the structure of production in, in, by lengthening it, then those new projects that you start won't be you won't be able to complete them, at least not profitably. And the reason why is because of the simple scarcity of resources. So normally the way the way it works is uh, people decide to set aside resources, they save, and then th- those are the resources that entrepreneurs can then use to to undertake different production projects at different lengths. And the the length and the, and the size of these projects is going to be determined by the, the supply of those resources. And the critical, the, the balancing act is seen through interest rates. You, so like you sort of see that, that careful setting aside of resources for production and then entrepreneurs using it. You see that through uh, the interest rates that emerge on, on the time market. But, but when, when the supply of credit is increased beyond real savings, then you get all of the distortions. So I know I've been talking a while, but let me make one more point here. Though that business cycle um, is started when you have inflation as defined by in our paper. However, if there's an increase in the supply of gold with additional gold mining and a gold standard for any market selected money, that doesn't start the business cycle. So that's yet another reason why we wanted to, to draw a, a big clear line between this increase in the supply of money and this increase in the supply of money. One of them is inflationary, causes the business cycle. The other one is is an increase in the supply of money, but it's it's through a, a typical market process. Gotcha. All right. So there was a lot there. Let me just rewind or re- replay sure, sure. and summarize that for listeners. So I think the basic insight here, as we said, there's the Cantillon effect, which is kind of the general effect of understanding that money is not neutral. Where you put it first matters. And then a subset of that is the Mises effect, which is essentially based on his explanation of what we call Austrian business cycle theory. And that's based on this idea that interest rates in the normal free market might be at a certain level, but actually with government intervention into the market for money and central banking, lender of last resort, capital gains taxes, legal tender laws, implicit, explicit bailout guarantees, etc., they artificially shift the interest rates that entrepreneurs are able to get when they're trying to get their projects or get funding. And so then what happens is this process of malinvestment, meaning projects are undertaken or started or commenced that cannot be seen to fruition because the resources required to complete them are not available because the I think in the literature it's referred to as artificially lengthening the structure of production, right? That it's people have sort of overreached in a way. They thought they could undertake this project, but actually they couldn't because the resource, the real resources required to undertake that project, whether they are physical or whether they are labor, they just weren't available. And so that's why... You know, that's this process of Austrian business cycle theory. And that's kind of in a colloquial sense where we see these bubbles being blown up and popped over time as a result of fiat money and fractional reserve banking. How do you think that goes as a summary? Oh, that was that was an excellent summary. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So I think as yeah, so we're talking about this idea that it's I think it's also probably a good point to to spell out here as well. How much of this is a ethical or moral consideration versus how much of this is a value-free economic consideration that even if we discarded the ethics component of it is there still this economics component that we can talk about and make a point about that what do you think 
Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. We, we tried really hard to, to be very clear in the paper that we are making a value-free distinction here. So we, we're just trying to describe the different ways that the money supply can increase, either through fiat money, through fiduciary media, or through gold standard, uh, 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 gold production in a gold standard. So we, we look at all of these different ways that the money supply could increase in all of these different institutions, and we just talk, talk about how in, in one set of cases, there are these sorts of consequences. And in, in the, the market case, uh, in the example that we use uh, most often in the paper is with the gold standard, there, there are a different set of consequences. And so that's why we draw the line between this case and that case, as I've mentioned. Uh, however, you're absolutely right. It is, it's very, you have to be really careful to not let, uh, ethical considerations creep in. Uh, I mean, I, I do think that there is a, a a good way to bring in ethics to to talk about the ethics of money production, like like Hulsman does. Uh, you mentioned his name earlier, but we we wanted to to make just uh, we wanted to make a distinction for the sake of economic theory. And economics is supposed to be a value free science where we're looking at the world, describing the way that it works. However, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I so personally out outside of me being an economist. I definitely think that, uh, like the fiat money system that we're under today is unethical. I, I, I think that the, the way that the government uses fiat money to, to, as like a, the surreptitious, the subtle tax on everybody else, I, I don't think that that's a, a good thing to do. Um, I, I think it violates all sorts of, of, of good ethical norms and, and values, uh, that I have. But in this paper, we really did try to just describe. We tried to be as objective as possible in saying, here are the economic consequences in this case, and here are the economic consequences in this case, and here's, and here's how they're different. Got it. So, yeah. So essentially the answer is, in this paper, it is value free. Like we're explaining the problem of inflation in an economic sense, even disregarding the moral and ethical questions and concerns, right? And I think this is probably an important thing to understand because sometimes people can conflate. So you may be an Austrian economist, yes or no, you might be one or you might not be one, but you could also be a libertarian and you might not be a libertarian. Like they're they're sort of they're distinct concepts, even though, to be fair, many Austrian economists are also libertarian in their thinking. They're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, one comment on that. So, I mean, theoretically, uh, one could be an Austrian economist and, you know, hate or be a misanthrope, just hate everybody and have, you know, maybe terrible ethics or like a, a, a very strange set of ethics that, that allows you to, 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 to be mean to people or something like that. And in that case, as an Austrian economist who, un- who understands man economy and state and, and human action and all these big tomes and has done all the reading, uh, if you're, if you're like that, then you, you could come to the conclusion that, well, yeah, of course we want, uh, uh, fiduciary media. Of course we want fiat money because, because I want, <laughs> I want to hurt people. I, I want people harmed. I, I don't want economic growth, all, all those sorts of things. So, so I know that's sort of like a weird example, but that does highlight the, the step that you have to make to go from the, the value free to the, to the policy prescriptions. And the step that you have to take is, you have to you have to have a set of values uh, in there, or, or you have to have a set of values on the way to say, well, we have these conclusions from just doing economics. Now, how do I achieve my desired universe? How do I achieve the my desired uh, state of affairs in, in the world? And in most in most cases, people are uh, are not misanthropes. They actually do care about their fellow man. And what that means is, Austrian economists do typically. Uh, end up being libertarians because they're going to advocate for policies that uh, are laissez-faire, that involve uh, no or very low uh, amounts of, of government intervention. Um, and, so, and so that's why there's that correlation. But I do think uh, not just in Austrian economics, but in all schools of thought, a lot of people start to think the other way around where they start to, they say, well, I have this worldview. I, I, I want a lot of government and therefore, I'm going to agree with with this economic school of thought. Therefore, therefore, Keynesianism is good because I want a, a strong, powerful government. But I mean, the same sort of criticism could go the other way. So, like, suppose you're a, a good libertarian. So, if you started from libertarian principles and then decided, well, I, I if I'm a libertarian, then obviously Austrian economics is correct. That's also incorrect. You shouldn't go that direction. Um, so, you you really should start with 
the objective science, just describing the way the, the economy works, and then let that lead you to your value conclusions, to your policy prescriptions. I see, yeah. And so another interesting interesting concept that might be good for you to help explain for us is this concept of the social rate of time preference. Because I think that's also an interesting idea when we're trying to distinguish between you know money creation of one kind versus money creation of another kind. Sure. So uh, time preference just refers to uh, the way that we uh, prefer present consumption. So we all, we all prefer uh, the present to the future uh, just by by our, our nature, actually. So the fact that we're human and we exist in time, it means it means that uh, any sort of delay in consumption means that we have to keep feeling the the sort of uh, the discontent that we have with not having our end met. I know I'm sort of getting all philosophical, but the idea is that we don't like to wait. We don't like to wait for our our satisfactions uh, to to occur. And because of that, we have we have a positive rate of time preference. We're going to place a premium on the present and a discount on the future. So uh, uh, Rothbard talks a lot about this in, in uh, Man, Economy, and State, and so and so does Mises in Human Action. They, they talk about how uh, the the way that the market comes together, market participants come together with these different rates of time preference is it's harmonious and it's value productive. And the reason why is because there's somebody who has a lot of resources, but has a lower rate of time preference. And there's somebody who doesn't have a lot of resources, but has a higher rate of time preference and, you know, needs to buy food, but they don't have, don't have the money today. They can interact in credit markets. So the, the person who has money available to lend, they can, according to their own time preference, they can lend the money and the people who want to borrow can borrow the money and we get a market price. The, the point being that we get this, uh, interest rate that balances the preferences of, of borrowers and lenders. Rothbard makes the important point that there's a, an even more extensive and, and more important time market in the economy with production itself. So if you think about uh, factors of production uh, as, as being uh, something that's not consumed today, but it's something that we use to make consumption goods that we can enjoy tomorrow, it means that all entrepreneurs, when when they're purchasing factors of production, they are delaying consumption as well. So there's the point is that there's an interest rate that emerges in just production in general, not not just in uh, loan markets. And so what we get is the social rate of time preference. So the 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 economy as a whole settles on the price in in this market, and we call it the interest rate in in economic theory. And of course, there can be all sorts of differences in loan rates and rates of return in production. But the point is that there is this underlying uh, rate that people are considering when they're deciding on uh, delaying consumption. So I'm not going to consume today, and instead I'll consume tomorrow. Yeah, and I guess maybe. It's like a loose analogy, but it doesn't exactly fit. But businessmen might evaluate projects based on what's called IRR, internal rate of return. And so it's sort of meant to reflect a little bit like they call it cost of capital. Um, but as you said, that's not the only type, but it's kind of loosely reflecting. People are trying to reflect for that idea as well, um, because right. it's kind of the idea of net present value of money as opposed to you know money from five years from now or whatever. And so I guess with the creation of new money. So I guess, you know, it all comes back to what we were saying around, did you pay a cost for that new money or did you just freely print it? And I think that sort of ends up being like the moral of the story or one of the morals of the story uh, in terms of where you landed in terms of the, let's say, the conclusion of this paper. And it also seems to me, as I read the paper, at least to me, it seems like fractional reserve banking is responsible for a lot of it also, right? Like if we were to imagine, hypothetically, we lived in a full reserve banking world and, you know, whether it was a fiat full reserve banking world or a gold banking full reserve world or a Bitcoin full reserve world, you know, how, how do you think that would impact our, like the interest rates as an example? Do you think, for example, interest rates would be higher than they are today, like on average, just because it's like the government is, in the, in the world today, the government is really suppressing those interest rates to give itself, you know, cheap debt, right? So, you know, do you think we can reason that way? Or do you think it's more like, really, it, 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 at the end of the day, it still matters what is the time preference of that society? Do you understand the question I'm I, getting yeah, at? Yeah, I, I think so. The, the way I think about fractional reserve banking is that it's it's another mechanism by by which the central bank can influence the money supply. So it's it's a very easy way for them to to increase and decrease the supply of credit. Back in the day, they would change reserve requirements that would have an effect on how much banks can lend, and this in, in turn would allow 
allow the central bank to have an influence on interest rates throughout the economy. So I know uh, reserve requirements are zero now, and they have a different setup where they're paying interest on reserves. And and instead of uh, enforcing, you have to keep a certain amount of reserves. Uh, will will reward you basically for keeping. Uh, reserves and also they have other sorts of requirements uh, like capital requirements. The point is that the way I think about fractional reserve banking is that it's it's basically a tool for the central bank these days to to enact its own monetary policy. And wh- while I do think that if we had like a, a full reserve system with with a gold standard, interest rates uh, would like on average would be higher. I also think that there would be less volatility. So what what we have with the central bank is. Interest rates go go out of whack, so they go way down when they're increasing the money supply, and then and then once there's uh, some inflation, they have to they have to pull back a ton. Like in in the late 70s and 80s, they they skyrocketed because Paul Volcker was trying to get the price inflation down. And I think we're seeing a, a similar sort of thing here, but not not to the same extent in terms of the effect on interest rates. Uh, so I, I think we would have a more uh, stable market and more stable economic environment. Uh, it would be easier for for business to be conducted uh, because there there wouldn't be these huge fluctuations in interest rates. And at the end of the day, the changes in the supply of money and the changes in interest rates would be something that's the result of the market. So it'd, it'd be the result of of people's own preferences and deciding to increase the money supply through additional gold mining or or even decrease the money supply in the form of like taking like melting down gold coins and turning it into a bracelet or something like that. So all all of that would be decided by market participants who have to pay attention to profit and loss and have to, you know, they have to provide for their families. So they're making they're individually making all of these decisions to their own benefit and the result is it's a sum of beneficial choices. It's a sum of choices that that represents a socially beneficial arrangement. But as you said, in the case of, of a fiat money, whether it's whether it's full reserve or fractional reserve, the increases are are not necessarily based on people's demand for additional money. I, and, and in my view, the fractional reserve system is just another mechanism by which you can have like more exaggerated changes in interest rates and in the supply of money. Yeah, and it's an important point you make that even if hypothetically we lived in a full reserve fiat system, but just the government gets to print more new coins, well we're still going to have inflation because, again, it's an interventionist... It's coming back to this idea of an interventionist phenomenon because they costlessly created more. And that would obviously still be harmful to us. So, as you said, even in a full reserve fiat world, to be clear, we would still be suffering relative... Society would be suffering in a overall sense because governments can do that, right? And, of course... Normally, that's a, that's towards the end stage, right? That's more like the Venezuela, Zimbabwe level of inflation. Whereas, you know, let's say in most of the Western world, governments aren't yet at the point where they're directly printing all the money. They're still it's still this fractional reserve system where the commercial banks actually create most of the new money, and the central banks are let's say backstopping them, acting as as lender of last resort, and just protecting this overall system that results in high inflation, but not you know Zimbabwe level or Venezuela level, right? Right. I, well, one extra thing that I'll mention here is that uh, I, I do think that in terms of the way the institutions have evolved. So we used to have we we used to just use coins. We used to use uh, precious metal coins, and we would haul those around. And then uh, banks uh, started issuing their banknotes that and it. I, I, I do think it started off as being a full reserve type system. And so I think that step of depositing into a bank and then seeing the piece of paper that represents the coin, just like any other sort of title, I think over time that, that caused just a disconnect in people's thinking of the paper is the money and not the gold that's behind it. And I think with fractional reserve banking, that, that connection was lost even further. And then when, uh, when, uh, governments started Printing their own paper that was redeemable for gold. Of course, it was fractional as well. Then there was additional disconnect. It's like, oh, now it's it's not uh, it's not just that uh, the paper is the money, but now it's paper that's provided by the government that's money. And so I think that's how we evolved to the system that we have today, where it's just a pure paper. Uh, yeah, fiat or we devolved, let's say. So <laughs> and yeah, so so I think. I think that disconnect happened in stages. It's not like, uh, it's not like all of a sudden somebody had this great idea. Oh, I think, I think governments should be in charge of money. 
And, uh, and, and so let's replace all of the gold or stop using gold and start using green pieces of paper with president faces on it. So it's not like somebody just all of a sudden made that decision. It was a, a slow evolution. Um, maybe a devolution is a better term, a, a slow change in where the government realized that it could use the, this, this piece of paper as a way to expropriate from, from the economy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. Uh, I think most of, you know, you, me, and probably most of my listeners would agree it's a devolution yeah. of money, unfortunately. And I'm also curious whether, okay, so, you know, where we are today, we're talking about what we think inflation should be defined as, right? It's, it's more like a, it's an interventionist phenomenon as we're, saying, as we're talking about it. But if you talk to, you know, Joe Sixpack, average guy on the street, if you talk to him about inflation, he's probably thinking of CPI inflation, right? And so the average person or even maybe even financial commentators might be thinking of it like that. They're saying really what they mean is CPI inflation. But I'm curious as well, are people, are we sort of buying into a Keynesian frame when we say, when people say this colloquial idea of, oh, they need to raise the interest rates, like they're saying the central bank should raise the interest rates to get inflation down. Isn't that sort of a Keynesian frame to even think about it? Yeah, it's yeah. I th- I think you're right, I'm, and I'm not even sure that we can win this battle, uh, is especially not with just you know one paper in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. So I I think that uh, we were sort of targeting our paper at economists who were in Austrian circles who were talking about inflation, and we're just trying to, to make sure that we we all see the distinction between this type of this type of inflation, money supply increase, and this this sort of uh, money supply increase that's that's on the market. Um, so. I, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that we can rescue the term. I'm not sure that we can, you know, get that back, at least uh, maybe not in my lifetime. Uh, but, but the point is we just want, we just wanted people to think more clearly about, uh, what inflation is and, and the consequences there. You're, you're absolutely right that it is, it's a, it's a Keynesian idea to say that if we just sort of tinker with this, interest rate, tinker with this price over here, then we can have this sort of result on prices. Um, but, but as, as we all know, it's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. It's a lot of, uh, uh, they, they don't understand all of the unintended consequences of, of their policy prescriptions. They don't understand how complex the economy is. Uh, they don't understand how sometimes you could, you could attempt to do one thing and have the opposite sort of, uh, consequence. Um, but I mean, that, that happens when you have this, this Keynesian view that's looking at these big aggregates and, and defining inflation as the change in, in, in CPI. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we've spoken about a lot of things. Let's try to summarize some of the key points here. So I guess we would say, you know, going back to how we started, Mises defined inflation as this increase in money supply associated with the increase in the demand for money. Rothbard defined it more like issuing money beyond the stock of specie, in this example, issuing gold tickets, more paper claims, more than the actual amount of gold, or in a Bitcoin case, more Bitcoin tickets than there are actual Bitcoin held on reserve. Um, and so the, I guess the moral of the story, the lesson of this paper is to try to explain the different ways money can be produced, the Cantillon effect as that happens, and to sort of point out that the actual negative consequences are when somebody is making money and didn't pay a cost for it. I would say that's probably the, the summary, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We, we, we really were not trying to launch a war over words. We're not trying to have a semantic battle. Uh, we, we just said that we, in, in our view, the term inflation is most suitable for this case. But the, the main point of the paper was to, to simply distinguish between those cases. You're exactly right. Excellent. So what do you think our, I mean, just kind of more broadly about Austrian economics and economics education? I'm curious, what are your thoughts more broadly on that? Like, do we have, uh, what are our hopes for success on trying to reach people? Because, you know, I, I think maybe there are sometimes there's like pop econ books and they can sort of help get to people as an example. And then other times it's just, you know, you're, you're maybe you're calling out only to a small percentage. You know, maybe, you know, 100% of the population won't, will not read or understand this concept, but maybe you're just sort of, you're narrow casting, you're trying to just get to those people because that's realistically all you can reach. What are your views just on East Austrian economics and trying to spread that more generally? So um, I'm, I'm generally optimistic. I, I think that there are uh, some things that are happening that uh, cause me to be optimistic. Uh, I mean, one, one huge thing is just the existence of Bitcoin itself. So that, that has caused tons and tons of people to start reading Austrian economics and start, and start thinking about time preference and the effect of, uh, of fractional reserve banking and, and, 
and the sort of the negative consequences of fiat money. So, so that's, that's a huge uh, reason, at least from like a, a larger view, why I'm optimistic is that there's, uh, it seems like there are way more people now that are skeptical of the monetary institutions that we have today compared to, I don't know, like 15 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so it seems, it seems like we're moving the needle. Um, and of course, only time will tell what actually happens, but I, I am optimistic. Uh, you also, I, I think that, uh, really since uh, the 2016 time period when we had uh, Trump and we had Brexit, I, I think that even outside of just Bitcoin circles, I think we have more people who are willing to be skeptical of, of government in general. They're willing to be skeptical of, of international uh, bodies that are, are trying to impose their own will on what, on what's going on in their own country. So you see a lot of decentralization efforts. You see a lot of people who aren't trusting the media as much as they were before. And so I think, I think those sorts of things, uh, are, are really great. It's, it's a really great, um, a thing, thing to see, to see happening. It's because people aren't taking the media at its word and they're, and they're being skeptical of what they're hearing from government officials. So in, in terms of like, in, in just Austrian circles, um, I, I know a lot of people like to, to recommend, like, we need to do more popular books and popular articles and that sort of thing. And some people say, like, no, we need more scholarly work and, and, and journal articles and, and big books that are for academics. And I mean, I know it's sort of a cop out to say this. And I, I'm just thinking, like, why don't we do both? Like, if you're good at doing the popular stuff, do that. If you think that there's a good hole that you could fill in, um, the academic literature, then go for it and do that. So I, I'm, I'm not one to make a, a sort of a, like a broad blanket statement that everybody needs to be emphasizing this type of work versus that type of work. I know we're, we're talking about a paper that Christopher uh, Hansen and I published in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, but you know, I also write for Mises.org and, and I've got uh, other popular works as well. And, and Christopher does other things as well. I think the, the point is, uh, you know, find, find the most suitable way and the most productive way for you to, to fit yourself into, into the movement and, and go for it as, as opposed to trying to say everybody needs to be doing uh, this sort of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think to the point you were making about normalization of various terms, I'll, I'll make that as an example, right? I would say 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, if you said the term fiat money, most people would be like, hey, what's that? Yeah. Whereas nowadays, I think more and more people are actually starting to understand, oh, okay, yeah, fiat money, it's it's government money, right? Like, so we're making some progress, I think, you know, even for me, when I was teaching people about stuff, you know, 10 years ago, I'd get that question, be like, hey, what's fiat money, right? And so then I have to kind of be like, oh, okay, wait, yeah, normal people don't know what that means. I have to, you know, explain that. Um, so we're making some progress, I think, but, um, you know, it's uneven and there are times where we regress, right? I think um, the year's... 2020, 2021, and 2022 were sadly a very big loss of liberty for, let's say, billions of people around the world. But hopefully we can uh, reach some people out there. So, look, I think that's probably a good spot to wrap up there. Jonathan, where can uh, people find you online or um, keep up with your work? So, I'm uh, active on Twitter. My uh, username is uh, at uh, NewmanJ underscore R. And uh, you can also see articles that I articles that I've written at uh, for the Mises Institute at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. And I uh, just want to say thank you so much for having me on. Oh, let me also just make sure uh, uh, Christopher has articles on uh, Mises.org. He, he's, he does a, a ton of great work. He's a great scholar. It's unfortunate that he wasn't able to join us today, but I, I do recommend everybody uh, check him out as well. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I'll hope to uh, get Christopher on at some point as well in the future. So, uh, Jonathan, thank you for joining me. It's been an enjoyable chat. Thank you. Thanks, Stefan. So I hope that episode helps clarify some things around inflation and how to think through the question. I particularly like the way they summarize it, that inflation is always and everywhere an interventionist phenomenon. So if you learned something in this episode, make sure to share it with family and friends so they can learn about inflation. Also, get the show notes at stefanlevera.com. And one quick note, uh, Chris Hansen, also one of the co-authors of this paper, had some technical issues, so he wasn't able to join us. So I've included his uh, links in the show notes also. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.